0: This is Changeling, the podcast.
1: Welcome to Changeling the podcast. Come for the glamour, stay for the vibes. I'm your host, Josh, and with us is your other host, Puka. Say hi, Puka. Salutations. What are we talking about today, Puka? We are doing our deep dive
0: into Noblesse Oblige, the Book of Houses, which is coverage of the five sealy houses of the She. And I think that this functions probably best as the Kith book She, part one. I think that's a good way to think of it.
1: Yeah. Not Nobles the Shining Host no (laughs) yeah (laughs) well
0: that was kind of yeah nobles the shining host in the shadow court as i think we said in those episodes are kind of kith books she but they kind of expand more generally to be like court book sealy and court book unsealy the each
1: this book is like full like 90 to 95 percent kith book she. no yeah you said you want to do an announcement
0: yes so first announcement As we record this, I am very congested, so I apologize for what that may do to the quality of my voice. Second announcement is we forgot that we were doing announcements, but periodically we'll probably drop some in. And then third announcement, shout out to Mage the Podcast. At the time of this recording, which probably won't be released for several weeks yet, Mage the Podcast just dropped an episode where host and friend of our show, Terry Robinson, mentioned that another way to assess these books that we are reading Mage books on their podcast, Changeling books on our podcast, respectively, is to take a look at the introduction, see what it says the book is about, and then see whether the book actually follows through on that promise. So with all respect to Mage the podcast, we might shamelessly steal that idea. Mm -hmm. In particular, I, I just want to highlight not the introduction, but the back cover, which mentions that this book contains new merits and flaws available only to characters of these houses. I'm going to warn any prospective buyers now, there are two merits and one flaw for House Guidian only. So right from the start, we have some false advertising. But don't let that dissuade you. Yep. Anyway, those are my announcements for this installment.
1: Yeah, it starts to... I don't like the cover on this book. It
0: really, it really shows you how, how scary those uh, house emblems can be when rendered on 90s computer software.
1: Yep. It feels like one of those, this is what happens when Photoshop goes wrong.
0: Or you've done too many hallucinogens.
1: Yeah. Oh, imagine a foil cover of this with like the elated silver and the Ooh. other silver gold foil, foil too. Yeah.
0: I think we also need to talk about the title for a second because Noblesse oblige, if I remember correctly. So it's a French phrase, meaning basically nobility obligates. And my former medieval studies minor brain is telling me that the term kind of arose in feudal times in Europe as this sort of idea. um, The aristocracy has the responsibility of looking out for the little peasants, basically. And it's this very sort of condescending approach to kind of looking at the social dynamics of that system. And it just fits the she perfectly. Like, oh, yes, we, we're meant to be the nobles, we're meant to rule. But, you know, mm-hmm. there's great responsibility that comes with that. And it's like really infuriating from the commoner perspective. So, um, yeah, I think as titles go, it's deceptively, it's very perfect.
1: And, and the, the writers, multiple writers in this book, they've really followed through on that with the tone of everything. Absolutely. I think.
0: Speaking of the writers.
1: Yeah. So this book's one of those handy... The main chapter, so not the in- introduction, the append- appendix, but each of the houses, with which writer gets which house. Yeah. Which is neat. Not in the order that it appeared in the book, but okay.
0: <laughs> well, it's alphabetical. so
1: ah, Okay, that makes sense.
0: We have Bryant Durrell for the House Liam chapter, who I don't think, I think he did like two other credits for Aberrant and nothing else, according to the White Wolf wiki. And then everyone else is like a veteran. So that will be relevant later, I think. Interestingly, mm-hmm. though, because when I was looking at these author credits, so this book came out at the start of 1998, and one of the authors, Jennifer Hartshorn for House Eilened, was listed as one of the layoffs from the sort of infamous layoff day in, I think, late 96. So it makes me wonder if this book had been kind of languishing in development for years before it actually saw publication.
1: Mm-hmm. I always assumed a lot of the writers were contractors, so it's possible she.
0: Yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe she came back just to do this book or something, Mm -hmm. but it looks like she doesn't have any other credits from after that 1996 date. Mm. Food for thought. Yep.
1: Okay. And this is another black, we're in the black and white era. Yeah. It starts off with an introduction and an in-world quote from Kai King David. Uh, long have we awaited this day, a day when peace could finally be declared between noble and commoner. One day I hope to see peace among us all, noble and commoner, seely and Seely, and all of the kith. Man, he needs a better speechwriter. Yeah.
0: He would have been a nine-year-old or something at the time he said
1: this. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yep. And then this gets into the introduction explaining what this book's about. Part of it's written in character, I think, which was a little bit confusing to me it's just a yeah. summary of the chapter. Of
0: the sh- yeah. It's presented as a series of treatises that are each in the voice of someone from the respective house. Yeah. 95% of the book is in that voice, but then occasionally, you know, out of character stuff slips in. Mm-hmm. What I do like mm-hmm. is they have the mm-hmm. note here that there are variations within each house, but then in order to be successful rulers, the she must present a front, a facade, if you will. I, I will, thank you, book, of unity among themselves. And mm-hmm. it is an interesting kind of notion that you have the she who present as a kith that signify one type of thing on the surface, and then you kind of break it down further because then you have the different houses, each of which presents a different thing on the surface, and now we're digging down into the weeds even further. So yep. on the one hand... I do like how you have those sort of multiple levels of complexity, and then on the other hand, it's almost like there's an in character reason why it's politically advantageous for them to to seem all the same from the perspective of the commoners, at least. So,
1: mm-hmm. eh. I think that also highlights one of those arguments over how many changelings there are mm-hmm. to support yeah. this many different houses with this many <laughs> different sub factions. With the, you need a lot of changelings that are active. Like, there's just no way around it. Yeah like and if you assume like the she are like what five percent of kithane like that's that's a lot
0: it's a lot of kithane and just kithane too but yes each treatise is supposed to be a a primer for new fosterlings to each house so it's like welcome noob
1: yep and then several of them of the actual chapters with the primers explicitly say that this isn't supposed to be allowed outside of the house i'm a little bit confused by this document (laughs) which becomes
0: relevant in a later supplement
1: yeah but i think the introduction does do a good job of describing what the book is
0: yeah i'll i'll agree i think it's not even necessarily so like you know they say oh their histories politics passions beliefs societies and honor every aspect of what makes each house unique some of the houses have a lot more detail on some of the items in that list than others
1: yeah so no, it also warned you about that too, that it will be like different focuses in each chapter. Yeah. So I think it was written after the five. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> Maybe Ian Lemke kind of read through the draft and was like, oh, what the hell did they give me here?
1: Mm-hmm. So starts out with House Dougal by Wayne Peacock. And all of these start with a story, I think. Yeah. Yes. And this is the story of House Dougal was formed, essentially. Also... Where Dougal was like a and she essentially, during the Sundering, essentially tries to find a way to tame cold iron and creates, st- invents steel out of it, and kind of like burns himself away in the process.
0: The initial frailty of the house, mm-hmm. or ban, I suppose, whatever the term is, and
1: he's got like the three. So sort of, there's like Dougal's like the, the the house founder, but like he implied he might not have survived even the initial founding. but there was three other fey involved and they're like the house founders essentially so
0: what did you think of this story overall like just out of curiosity how did it read to you i liked
1: it i thought it was a good story to have in character that house google would say i just
0: maybe i'm too critical (laughs) but there were there were so many things that bugged me like Okay, so so to your point that it seems like Dougal might have disappeared, it says his ruined body, some say his ruined body was blasted to dust. Others say he was taken by the dreaming. And yet others believe that whatever was Dougal is now in the steel that he made. And I'm like, then why is this entire story written from his perspective, like first person almost, not quite first person, but it's written from his inner psychology. And I don't know, it's just little discrepancies like that bug me. He also just sounds like such a teenager sometimes. (laughs) And he's supposed to be this incredibly powerful Fae Lord Smith at the dawn of time. And yet he's like, you know, tripping over his words because he's embarrassed. And I don't know, it just, Mm. it bothers me when these origin myths are presented in a voice and in a writing style that is much more like mass market paperback fantasy novels. But I think that's a complaint that I that built up slowly over the course of reading this book. So, sorry, I had to get that out. I had to get that off my chest. So,
1: keep in mind that's the she remembering the stories problem. This is probably going to be. I don't think this would have been something that would have lasted to the resurgence as something written down.
0: I suppose so, but it it doesn't read like an oral retelling. That's what bothers me.
1: Okay. It also it also by the way it implies and this is something followed up in other chapters that like Dougal taught mortals or invented or was involved with uh, mortals taking up silver against the Geru. Like there's a lot of werewolf history in this book.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there is, which I I fully understand it coming from Ethan Skimp, who wrote the house Gwydion chapter, but for everyone else, I'm like, why were you all so into werewolves? Yeah. So after the story, we get a journeyman's guidebook to house Dougal Mm -hmm. point of note the house refers to childlings as apprentices, wilders as journeymen, and grumps as masters. Freeholds are often called workshops. So, which, you know, I'm into.
1: Yeah, I'm curious how you'd do that in C20. Like, it'd be like, oh, you were a master, and now you've learned a light neck. yeah, out.
0: that's that's true. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, but, you know, that actually,
0: that kind of opens an interesting... Um, idea that maybe once you've mastered some particular kind of crafting, discovering a new one kind of reawakens the glamour within you as you get all excited about mm. learning this new style. I could kind of see that.
1: Oh, that's cool. Anyway. Yeah, it's like I I was a great metalsmith. Now I've taken up knitting and I am an apprentice once again. <laughs> She's making jewelry now. The history of the Dougal sort of fits with that possible story, which is listed as what the heck is cold iron
0: which we get spelled out in an extensive sidebar well not spelled out we get multiple theories spelled out in an extensive sidebar so yeah i think i like them roughly in the order that they're listed here so the four theories that are in this sidebar say that it's that iron is the sundering incarnate the philosophical division between humankind and the dreaming incorporated made flesh so this kind of fits with the think of it as a process not an object kind of idea. Mm-hmm. Then the idea that it's the antimatter of glamour that was drawn out of nightmare. Then the idea that it was poisoned by Balor or even made from his body. And then lastly that the Garu awakened the spirit of iron in revenge for Dougal teaching the humans about silver, which is the one I like least because that relies on an external, a splat external to the setting in order to justify it also
1: contradicts that story right yeah the order of things in the story (laughs) yeah
0: (laughs) well the story seems to suggest it's the third one that balor specifically poisoned it
1: or at least he thought it was yeah yeah Uh, this whole book is very in character Mm -hmm. and i kind of like that
0: i thought the note was interesting that i forget which page it's on but so the treatise is written by baron wayland steward to high lord donovan mentor to house dougal so he's like I think he's actually second in command or something. And I like the mm-hmm. note that he says the Dougal are considered arrogant. And it's funny because I don't think I've seen that anywhere else, but then I, I haven't seen much about Dougal anywhere else. So sure.
1: Yeah. They're like the boring parts of knockers and boggins put together. Yeah. <laughs> the way people talk about them. like, yeah, they're good at making stuff. Yeah.
0: I guess they take pride in their work and that's why they're arrogant.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm hmm. This one has a lot to do, it goes a lot over like the politics over the interregnum and how it was structured and make it like the house was actually active during the interregnum, just not much in of she.
0: Yeah, more about that really than the rest of the history, how there was the yeah. false automaton of their interregnum leader Moran. But it's cool that the house was led by a knocker, I guess.
1: Yeah, who then tried to make them side with the commoners in their accordance war. Yep.
0: I like that there's a... Dougal code as well. Mm-hmm. They So they say, work, not words. We learn best by seeing and doing, not li- not by listening. So you'll be judged by your deeds. They value honesty and integrity, and they insist on improving the dreaming. And I don't think we get a separate code for any of the other houses, but I, I like that it's in here.
1: I had a note about dreams of human wizards violating the sovereignty of Arcadia. Know, Which I again, comes
0: up repeatedly in this book. <laughs>
1: yeah yeah this is a lot more crossover heavy than i remembered yeah
0: overall the history i suppose it's fine it definitely seems again like one of those histories where the author kind of had their head canon and had the opportunity to make it Mm canon so they took it because it doesn't leave you a lot of room for like exploring anything outside outside of it Mm -hmm. And it just kind of says, oh, yeah, we came back during the Accordance War. We should have done more to stop the shattering. When we came back during the Accordance War, we sided with King Davish. Oh, well. And I'm like, what? Mm -hmm. That's it? (laughs) So they made weapons for the other she. Okay.
1: Yeah, I I mean, that is House Dougal. It gets into the day in the life of a Dougal and a Wilder supposed to wander around being workers for various places and stuff. Something that unreasonably
0: bothered me in this chapter is the inconsistency of terminology. We have a sidebar about the Torgel-an, which is almost but not quite spelled like toggle an anam which is the previous term we've gotten for passing from one seeming to another. So I don't know if this is meant to be different or just misspelled and poorly remembered. Similarly, mm. the chapter repeatedly refers to talismans, which I think is supposed to be treasures, oh, right? Oh, yeah, I was a little bit... Yeah. So there should have been a, a glossary passed around the writer's room, maybe.
1: Anyway. Yeah, so they have, they have secret societies of the. I think the term secret society should have been not used.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> because most of them are like not very not secret. secret. So we get Kranad's Legion, which, again, plays into that whole headcanon meta plot that I frankly don't think is necessary to run Hostugal. The Temperance League. I'm just so confused by this. What do they do? They they tamp down emotions. I remember this in previous books. Maybe talked about. There's the mothers of Moran who keep an eye out for one of the three founders of Dougal, the one who the knocker who ran the house during the interregnum, because the one that is currently around is apparently just an automaton. The Discordian mm-hmm. engineers, who are probably my favorite, they make computer viruses. The Loricas, sorcerers with the primal art and the antiquarians who study talismans. (sighs) Something that bothers me also, besides the secret part of these secret societies not actually being that secret, is we get more information about these than the rest of the section on how House Dougal's kind of, how their society functions. Like, Mm -hmm. essentially, they're a meritocracy that values hard work and inventiveness above all. And they're pretty chill about silly versus Unsealy, or more chill than one might think, even though they are a Sealy house. But like it just flies through these things. Like the Sealy Code and the Unsealy Code get like two sentences per point. Whereas in the other chapters, we get mm-hmm. extensive information. So I would have rather had that than here's what this secret society that's heavily invested in this meta plot is doing.
1: Or the antiquarians could have been cool if they, they made more write up. Yeah. And yeah, not, absolutely. Talismans. I mean, yeah, the escheat
0: at least gets a little bit more substance to it, I guess. But even that, not.
1: fewer in the house isn't a fewer, It's like great deeds, making a masterpiece. Let's do a craft off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, technically, it could be a dance off, though. But the rules. For sure. Then there's opinions
0: about the other houses, and then the other kiths seems like they mm-hmm. pretty much are all in on Gwydion, which makes sense, because that's the one they stemmed from. And all out on Islanded They don't seem to like or trust them at all.
1: Everybody hates Islanded who's not islanded in this book.
0: Yeah. Unfairly so, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Boggins and Knockers have high regard within the house. And that's, like, we get a few sentences on commoners. That's about it.
1: Yeah, it's not breakdown on Kith stuff like the other ones.
0: It's kind of self-contradictory too, because they say, oh, the other Kith are not the she's equals in power and prestige in House Dougal. And then it says, the final criterion for position in our house has always been the work that a member does, which kind of implies your craft is more important than your Kith. And yet there's this... Yeah,
1: you know... but this gets back into the arrogance thing I actually Like here. They're saying, oh, no, no, we're, we're meritocracy. It just happens that the right. best work is almost all done by she. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. And then the gallein section. I'm just going to skip right over the Nunehi part because yep. I do like that there are these little sidebars that are sent from Aquila, who's a member of the house, from Aquila at to Oracle at Camaranet.com.
1: Yeah. So there's allusions to Camaranet in this, and they say a few things, you're like, what the there's no actual write up of it that I would need to use Kimerine in my game and it's like where is this coming from? Is this...
0: Yes, but I do like I do like the sidebars. I like how mm-hmm. Trenton gets mentioned. Trenton doesn't get enough love. For the Prodigals, we have more about the Garu than all of the others combined. Yep. My sense is that the author for this section really liked Nobles the Shining Host because I keep seeing callbacks to it.
1: I think may have been told reach nobles the shining host before doing this. Like you're just looking at it as like, yeah.
0: But then like, I think it's house Fiona does all these callbacks to Isle of the mighty. Mm -hmm. So there is some kind of variation. It's just really Mm -hmm. specific here because they like, they mentioned the writings of lady Sierra, which was the frame narrative for the opinions chapter in nobles, the shining host.
1: Anyway, I do like under the Gary though, the emissaries encountered a pack of Gary in Japan called the glass walkers that's like yeah glasswalkers word for japanese garu there we go yeah but all throughout this like it, i think it also that helps highlight that this is unreliable <laughs> yeah oh definitely you no know any
0: which applies to all five very heavily mm-hmm. with one possible exception we get notes about humans and kinane fomorians slash fomori this book also, it kind of walks back a bit to the first edition perspective of, oh, maybe the Famori are the Femorians, We're not sure. And again, it's hard to know exactly how long this book was in development, but you think they'd have sorted it out by now. It feels like
1: there's some running jokes in the book that like, I never get the impression the writer wants you to actually take a serious reality. Just what mm. somebody might think like the Femori Femorians vampires are um red caps and all sorts of, like because it yeah so i mean this one is like a, different chapters and they're like uh they've got a similar name so they're bringing it up the fact it's brought up in every chapter that was a bit much i think but that's probably the, just that's just from the way it was written
0: yeah there's the speaking of nobles the shining host there's the five percent of the parliament of dreams are and Sealy out which is a very specific statistic to drop back in mm-hmm and then Lost Ones. They mention Ilmarinen, who I believe is the famous Kalevala Finnish epic smith who created the sample. Mm. So I'm glad that's in there.
1: Yeah, Dougal's Oath. Dougal, joining House Dougal gets you like bonuses that you don't get yeah. from another other kith.
0: But not starting as one, weirdly. Mm-hmm. There's
1: a mention in here, the Aachen Press which mm-hmm. I found yeah. <laughs> kind of neat. I like Google. Have, I want more trade journals in the world of darkness. We have lots of groups having trade journals and then like you publish between them. Anyway.
0: Yeah. So then we have the current politics with the amusing epigraph, yawn, Melka's comment after reading a detailed report of the state of Dougal's intrahouse y- intrigue. But the initiatives include the Catalogue of Dreams, which is an encyclopedia of talismans and mechanical chimera, which does include ChimeraNet. Uh, It allows glamour to be transmitted Mm -hmm. over the internet, which that deserves more attention. Mm -hmm. There's the Hinterlands Project, which is an attempt Mm -hmm. to map every trod that connects Earth to a location in the Dreaming. The Internet Initiative, which, okay, I guess that is kind of the, well, it's the software company that makes ChimeraNet.
1: Yeah, she runs DreamSoft, and it's just like, I know this was (laughs) distributed, I can picture the exact... It's like this edutainment software that comes on like a CD and you put in your windows 98 computer. It's yep. Actually, what about a windows 95 computer?
0: Hashtag yeah. the nineties. Mm-hmm. And then the legendary treasures,
1: which yeah.
0: I don't know. I, I didn't find any of them really that fascinating. I mean, there's a big hammer. There's a sword.
1: I mean, the hammer is kind of neat. It's, I like the calipers.
0: I did like the anvil in particular that when you swear oaths on it, they have their effects doubled thought that was kind of cool
1: yeah my favorite treasure or talisman is probably sleep bank though which i found kind of fun Uh, yeah e-bank it needs some consequence of not putting it down but you can store up your needing to sleep and then you put it down and then you fall asleep possibly for a very long time
0: (laughs) and then some prominent faces so it's important to remember that each of the houses have their high lord and none of them are actually kings or queens of concordia which I think is an interesting mm-hmm. aspect. Sometimes th- the ducal chapter actually does kind of talk about the tensions that that creates, but I'd like there to be a little more attention to it.
1: Yeah, that's that's a th- maybe we I think we need at some point to do an episode on like the official structure of fae politics because just a big old diagram. Yeah, maybe just a post or just draw a diagram a post.
0: Yeah. But anyway, we have High Lord Donovan we have Princess Lenore, the heir of David, Queen Mary Elizabeth of the Kingdom of Grass, who's a spinster with great hair and jewelry, Lady Legre, the bargain editor of Aachen Press, Aquila, who's an issue emissary, and Baron Wayland, who, because he's the unreliable narrator of this chapter, devotes so many more paragraphs to himself. Yep. And then he ends with a little sidebar curse if you stole this chapter.
1: <laughs> yeah, which makes you very confused by the framing.
0: Something that I didn't realize until I got to the end of this chapter, but actually really bothered me, I suppose one always has to be careful about the risk of ableism, but the fact that their house flaw of losing the use of a limb or the use of an organ of some kind, like, that never really gets mentioned. And I don't know, I think it deserves at least a little bit of exploration in the sense of, like, this is something that they deal with it's an opportunity to deal with it Mm -hmm. in a positive way. I mean, I think there's a note in the second edition core book where they say, like, often that inspires them to create some kind of apparatus to overcome that.
1: And just to be clear, it does mention it a bunch of times in terms of like, oh, this person has no use to hearing this year or that type of thing. Yeah, it's not that they ignore it, but they just don't talk about, yeah, you're right. They don't talk about how that, this, I mean, this is not the only chapter like this it definitely focuses on outlining a society over how to play a game in that society. Exactly. Yeah. Like the fostering stuff. I'm like, okay, that's useful in one sense, but like, are your PCs all going to be fosterlings or fostering another? Like that's right.
0: And are they, are they only going to care about the politics? (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know. This chapter just kind of bugged me for that, for those reasons.
1: Yeah. I, I found a lot. I liked in the chapter. Hmm. But I'm not saying, like, as a percentage of the text. Okay, could it have been better used? Absolutely. Compared to anything else on how to play cult like, I have kind of run up short of ideas. So, yeah. Anyway. And then Light and Shadow, a primer on House Aelinud. This has my favorite story introduction? Yes, uh,
0: Agreed. 100% agree. There's another one that I like equally. But, yes, I okay. loved this story. It's basically James Bond but she like very James Bond, but she, the only thing that I didn't care for quite as much was the sort of diegetic calling upon the arts and calling upon the weird. Mm. But yeah, that, that's my only complaint.
1: Mm-hmm. The story I wouldn't say is part of the document. That would be a weird thing to have. Yeah. <laughs> you know what you're to your childlings. Maybe part of my issue with Dougal is because
0: it's the first chapter in the book and it kind of sets the tone. Mm. I get frustrated with it because then when you get to Eilened, the history is much more fleshed yeah. out. It establishes things like Eilil and Eilened are the eldest son and youngest daughter, respectively, of the clunkily named Al-Yun-Yad, uh, and that they have kind of a case of sibling rivalry. The house from the start had this role as kind of Prophets and sorcerers, but also seneschals. I liked the note. They talk about how, as the the sundering kind of took hold, they were the ones that proposed fortifying freeholds against banality. Mm-hmm. Which kind of makes me think, oh, so they're responsible for the lost ones. So mm. that's kind of an interesting. Oh,
1: thing they're to responsible think about. for a lot of things. <laughs> it's true,
0: but not apparently for. Problems in Arcadia because once again we get blaming the mages in this case.
1: (laughs) I found it interesting. Like yeah, they're sibling house, but they're also like explicitly children of someone who I don't think we ever get mentioned at all in Changeling again. Like was that even a she that they're a child of? Was that one of the Tuatha? Was it something else? I
0: don't know, but Aelinet also liked playing with vampires back in the day. So mm-hmm. there's that.
1: Ah, that's, it. that's, it. We, we need to run a first city game and then you can play your like alienate is like optional things. Okay.
0: They're daytime friend. Yeah. The tone kind of goes from, oh, we're so overlooked and underappreciated to like, you know, moving through the sundering, the shattering into the Accordance or a very casual admission of murder because they're like, well, we had to do the night of the iron knives because those commoners were just, yeah. There's this notion of well, we had to like get the she to stand together, and then they just completely gloss over the accordance war itself. Mm-hmm. It goes straight from that night to the information age. And don't get me wrong, I think the Alynette is the house of the information age is great. I love this artwork we get on page forty one of their house emblem overlaid with binary,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but the Accordance War is kind of a big deal within the setting, so...
1: Yeah, but as an in-character document, they just want to skip right over it like make some sense.
0: Oh, yeah. No, it's it's perfectly in- internally consistent. I think just one has to bear that in mind. Yeah. Most definitely.
1: These are all in-character, and there's all bias in that, but this is the one you're most likely going to be like, hmm, are they lying to you here?
0: Almost definitely.
1: Yep. You know, so yeah, then we get
0: into their version of the Escheet, which is much more thoroughly expanded.
1: Mm-hmm. We get to a little sidebar on, does the dreaming inspire dreamers, or do dreamers create the dreaming? I'm not quite sure where that was there, but... Yeah. They have these two oaths, the Oath of Silence and the Oath of Truth, and both are yeah. kind of punishing.
0: And the Oath of Fealty.
1: Oh, yeah. Which is also punishing. <laughs> <laughs> the Oath of Silence, I was wondering, like, Only by spending a permanent point of willpower can they speak of the forbidden topic. I'm like, does that mean they can't be compelled to do it? I don't know.
0: I suspect that the contracts art we get in C20 was partially out of questions like that surrounding oaths.
1: Yep. The oaths are still separate from contracts.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. But I mean, you can cover a lot more of those cases more easily using contracts as an art rather than doing an oath. Mm-hmm. And overall, I want to say this section, especially the street part, it really demonstrates their aristocratic nature, mm-hmm. but also how much they are surprisingly rule-abiding. They they definitely have an ends justify the means attitude, but you know they're they're actually quite committed to like the rights of the Ischeet.
1: Well, Yeah, I thought it did a great job of. They're not just an unseely house; they're a seely house with a very strong unseely side and they right like that i think that that point like that
0: fine line i think they did well which they get into on the following two pages and they talk about that sort of balance between the two they're like yeah nobody could be wholly one or the other and denying one side or the other isn't going to make it go away so they really embrace both to an interesting extent functionally politically they're seely because they prefer the status quo mm-hmm. and they want they want things to stay as they are with respect to, well, certainly their position of power, but also the relationships with with mortals and glamour and everything. But yeah, personally they're like, Yeah, well we'll we'll do what we need to. That's fine. Mm-hmm.
1: But what they need to is not always sometimes that needs that means being seally. So Yeah.
0: The little shadow court parchment sidebar is quite amusing, I thought. Mm-hmm. Where they're like, the shadow court is this. The shadow court is this. The shadow court is also this. The shadow court is this. Any or all of these might be true. <laughs> and then there's a section on remembrance and the dreaming, which is just three stanzas of a Dante Gabriel Rossetti poem.
1: So that's cool. Yep. And then we get to their secret societies, which I don't even think are secret in this. Question. No. It's such a bad name for it. But... Well, no, they're just societies. Here. Oh, there's no secret. Oh, perfect. Of course. It's a, there's a law firm that I don't remember at all. I thought I had read this book before, but I guess it stuck with me. There's this law firm that just like international law firm that'll help out Faye with stuff. And it's like, Oh, I can so use that in a game. <laughs> it doesn't say they don't work for free. I very much doubt they work for free or they don't get anything out of it. So, mm.
0: and they're in Toronto.
1: Yep. And Boston
0: and Seattle and London. And Baltimore. We have the Knights of the Silver Key who seek out knowledge and the Knights of the Silver Web who I guess also seek out knowledge. Well, they seek out the rescue of changelings.
1: They're an offshoot of the Knights of the Silver Key. Yeah.
0: And then the Order of Moonfall, who are experts at divination. Mm -hmm. There's also a brief mention somewhere else about the Order of Shalot, who I think we did see previously, and I think they're more associated with Fiona. But uh, they are a secret society because they're slipped into the narrative in a Mm -hmm. different section.
1: And then we get... Comments on the other houses. Surprisingly respectful
0: ones. I mean, yeah. at least for Gwydion, Fiona, and Dougal. Like, given how much those three despise Eilatet. <laughs> yep. They do consider the Gwydion gift for seeing through lies to be an inconvenience. <laughs> yep.
1: Yeah, they're like, no, that makes sense. They're And, you know, Pine King David's doing a good job.
0: <laughs> yeah. And then they're kind of like, ugh, house lamb. And... That kind of arm's length love for House Elil. They're like, yeah, we're siblings but uh, mm-hmm. disgust for the other two unseelie houses who are around at this time.
1: They talk about Skahawk. Where was Skahawk introduced? Noble's the Shining Host. It wasn't Noble's... But did they get stats and stuff?
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. I the blank they out. didn't get a full write-up until Book of Lost Houses. but Okay. And then we get actual splat-by-splat details on the commoners mm-hmm. from the Alienid perspective where they seem to like Boggins, Ishu, and Slua, and Puka, surprisingly. Well, I say like, I I also mean find useful in some cases. Trolls and Satyrs, they're kind of indifferent to, and then they don't like knockers or redcaps, which is going to be a recurring theme. And their primary criterion for evaluating the splats seems to be like, how much information and what kind can they provide us?
1: I mean, Puka makes sense for that. Puka are good at learning things. For sure.
0: One thing that did bug me, though, is that they point out that the Lianan are glamour-hungry ravagers who leech the dreams of mortals to extend their own lives. My understanding was that House Lianan did everything they could to keep that secret. So I don't know if this is just pointing to the island that know
1: that and nobody else does, or if the writer... They also it. think Lianhan ravage, though.
0: I suppose, but it says to extend their own lives, which is like...
1: Yeah, curse, that's true. So. That's That's too much knowledge. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Anyway. I guess the Nunez section here is slightly better than the others in this book. Mm. Um, And then the prodigals, um, again, mostly arm's length.
1: And then the notables, different little character descriptions.
0: Yes. Countess Anne is my favorite. Mine too. She's a Mount Holyoke college sophomore who holds wild parties and is a prominent member of the cat's cradle.
1: I'd be most likely to bring Sir Davis Rathman into a game though, I think. Hmm.
0: And he's the, the lawyer founder. Yeah. We have Meldgen Fairleth, who will come back in Kingdom of Willows. Dame Josephine, who co-founded the Knights of the Silver Web. And High Lord Ariadne, who... Ariadne was a woman in Greek mythology, and High Lord Ariadne appears to identify as male.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I kind of want there to be something there, but there isn't. Mm-hmm. So, and there's really not much information about him at all. So,
1: And then two very myth ma- treasures in my mind. Three, oh, three, very mad
0: three. Three
1: very mad treasures. Three. Three very mad treasures. <laughs> treasure software. Is, is the treasure your freaking like CD-ROM software treasure? Yeah, I suppose. I do like
0: Elena's mirror because something that was talked about on the Discord recently was uh, the trope of casting magic through mirrors, mm-hmm. which this treasure allows. There was a point way back in my youthful days when I made an entire art based around that idea. So, I like whenever that kind of pops up.
1: C20 Soothsay does sort of have that too. But yes. I'm
0: well, dead. yeah, but I was more inspired by an episode of Gargoyles.
1: So. <laughs> mm,
0: yeah. Anyway, I think this is probably my favorite chapter in the book. Mm-hmm. I think it does an excellent job of really fleshing out the house because they are presented kind of one dimensionally up to this point. It's like, oh, they're the sneaky ones, but they have a lot of depth here in the sense of. You know, you, you get a sense of who they are through the tone of the narration, but then you also kind of find out surprising opinions that they have about others, mm-hmm. and you see some of the ways in which they leverage the information they gather. It's not to say they they aren't or can't be sneaky and villains, but I like making them more multidimensional.
1: Yeah, and but it's still consistent with the reputation. Of- sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then this takes us into House Fiona. If you thought the Dougal chapter talked a lot about werewolves. Oh, yeah. I
0: just, and I mean, talk about a long ass story. Talk about two long ass stories. I I did (laughs) learn
1: that when I'm up, I can't get down. Wasn't written by great big C. They were covering an oyster band song. (laughs) Useful information to extract. Yes, that probably means nothing to anyone outside of Canada.
0: <laughs> we also have the Paul Phillips art with all of the boxy bodies, which, okay. Yeah. I guess it's priming me for kithbook satyrs when that's par for the course.
1: Why did the supposedly sexy stuff have to be with the boxy bodies? <laughs> Do you want to summarize this story? Oh, yeah, all right. <laughs> um, it's just
0: really awkward. And kind of gross. I mean, it's also romantic, I suppose. It's what you'd expect. So basically, there's a young mortal couple who has just made love for the first time.
1: Ah, we learn later. It's a werewolf and a mortal. Yeah,
0: also that. Great. We've got that in here, too. And the boy had just killed a deer or something before. I So I guess it was a celebratory boning. Mm-hmm. So Fiona sprang from the passion of the lovers, the invincible battle lust from the boys' victory. And I quote, an alluring sadness from the girl's broken maidenhead. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm done. But I get it. I mean, again, it fits with the depiction of the house as these sort of like lusty warrior types who are passionate Mm -hmm. and mad about love and everything. I just don't know that we needed like an actual mythic foundation for that anyway but i guess it's similar to like the myth of aphrodite and all of that
1: yeah it's like what if aphrodite also really liked to fight right so then later on
0: fiona is riding along and she finds this injured mortal who it turns out later was kind of planted there so that he could become fiona's lover because of some ancient pact that compelled her to rescue him which was done in order that he might learn the secret of defeating the werewolves who were at the time doing their impergium thing and massacring the humans because Fiona was tight with the werewolves so she would know their weakness of silver.
1: This got back to like werewolf and changeling drew from the same myth with a different spelling. House Fiena and the Fiona. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I think that's the only reason why they have a connection is someone was like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we linked those two together? No, no, yeah. it would not. And then the Fiona hate the Eilened because they were the ones who betrayed the fact that Fiona took the silver from Gwydion to give her mortal lover, following advice from Liam, the story of which got out because her handmaiden betrayed her. So Fiona apparently cursed everyone named Genevieve to never feel love. Like, I was just so befuddled <laughs> by the end of this. And also the adjectives. It's like adjectives gone wild in here. Everyone is like Lascivious and all that. Anyway, I couldn't get into this story, I admit. Mm -hmm. So that's the first story in the chapter. Then you turn the page and you get a second one (laughs) about the founding of the house, which is very localized to Scotland and has a lot of connections to Isle of the Mighty. Fiona defeated a monster back in the mythic age and was
1: rewarded with a house. All right. I think calling the monsters Red Cap and Pukas, I kind of see where they're coming from with yeah. that, but I'm like.
0: <laughs> well, the Fahan is like the specific callback to Isle of the Mighty. Yeah. And then the Achwishka, I think actually might come up in um,
1: the Book Bukdulahan by Andrew Goodman, because it's the water horse. And they basically win. I mean, they're good at fighting, but they win because they're not afraid of things. Except the loss of their love.
0: Yeah, and then we kind of fly through the rest of their history. <laughs> like, yep. The rest of their history takes up a page and a half, and those mm. other stories took up, what was it, seven and a half pages? So. I don't know. I could buy
1: they didn't do much of note. That's...
0: <laughs> Aww. No, I kind of like them. They are kind of snarky about the other houses, which I think kind of fits. Mm-hmm. many of House Gwydion wouldn't feel heartbreak if it bit them on their royal purple bottoms, or if it did, they'd never show it. It's like, geez. All right, Lady Julia Spencer Drake, narrator of this chapter. One thing that does stand out to me when they talk about the Accordance War is actually important note back to the the sort of origin story is that Fiona herself remained on earth. And there's this sort of idea that maybe she kind of like wandered the earth as this old woman distributing advice or whatever before disappearing and then during the shattering many of the house did stay or or at least handed over their their seats of power and their instruments of rule to the commoners so when they came back during the resurgence it's like oh we earned the trust and affection and respect of the commoners and we refused to fight against them so it's this narrative of like oh we're the only ones who treat the commoners right but then it mentions things like, oh, look at the prosperous courts in Concordia ruled by Fiona Shee, like Queen Aaron in the Kingdom of Pacifica. If you'll recall, in the toy box way back at the start of first edition, Queen Aaron was like, you know, had her bloodthirsty reaving where she slaughtered commoners as she came to power. So there's some, some sort of blindness in the narrator here, which I think actually is a good thing to have. It, it fits. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so then when we get into the Fiona society part, all right, so we get notes about the romantic societies from Nobles the Shining Host, and I feel like they should have been in here in the first place. This is where they made sense. Mm -hmm. But whatevs, it's fine. There is the note about how uh, House Fiona has a large number of affiliated and even titled commoners, and basically one's passion is what matters for joining, so much as... Dougal is emergency mm-hmm. based on crafting the Fiona value
1: I guess gumption in battle and or love gets into Sealy, and then Unseelie and then Shadow Court and then Sowing yeah this is the part where the chapter starts to get a little bit awkward <laughs> I mean it was already a little bit but now it gets quite does make me think we need to have an episode talking about the mists and how to use that mm. but maybe not yeah. this
0: way apparently a kink is always unseely and mm-hmm. Samhain is when the Fiona like descend into their their deepest darkest desires which frankly are neither that deep nor dark they're like oh we strip a mortal naked and cover him in chocolate pudding and then eat our way all around him uh, okay well I mean they
1: did kidnap one, but
0: yeah, still. Well considering that other kids kidnap and then actually eat the mortal.
1: Yep. True. And then if he's a really good sport about it, we'll enchant him and he can party with us.
0: Yeah. It's like all right. Then they have a big bonfire and confess the sins that they would like to commit. Alright. I don't know. It just it seems like I, I feel like I'm supposed to be a lot more shocked than I actually am, you know? <laughs> So, yeah, so then we have some secret societies and social clubs. So now they are secret again. The societies that we have here include the Knights of Safar, who are a chivalric order, pretty straightforward. The boy toys, both male and female, who have legendary sexual appetites. Okay, Loki's brood, who are politicos. They're contrarian for the sake of being contrarian, I guess. And then the makers and markers who have a passion for arts and crafts. So Mm -hmm. something that bugs me here is this sidebar that's like, oh, we're not all sex crazed hedonists, but that's a large part of exactly what this chapter says, you know, And and I get that the societies are meant to like tilt at other stuff that they do, but it does not counterbalance the immense weight of everything else in this chapter.
1: Any White Wolf book, like World of Darkness book, not just change, like does that. Where it's like, if there's a sidebar saying, no, this group really isn't just that, it just spent a whole chapter saying they're just right. that. So. I think that's part of why I like the Aelinud one, though, because
0: it does show that they aren't all just the sneaky types. Yeah. Um, the cheat part is pretty straightforward. It's, it's very detailed. It is very detailed. And it's very mortal-centered, which is... You know, that fits. The Oaths of House Fiona, there's only one oath, and it's just an oath of betrothal with no like mechanics. Or
1: penalty for breaking it or anything, yeah.
0: Yeah. So then there's the fostering piece. Long story short, we're not going to get into the squicky details, but the fostering for House Fiona involves taking a young Fiona through the first tastes of love, and they have to be a fully mature wilder to enter the world of the sensual. It, it's pretty, yeah, you don't need to include this in your game.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it, it reads like grooming, and we're just going to tear that page up. Relations with other houses. Political relations. Well, actually kind of mm-hmm. in both senses. Because uh, everything just keeps coming back to sex, and that's the case here mm-hmm. as well. Like, At least for the commoners, they're kind of evaluated on the basis of how likely the Fiona
1: are to bone them. Like the narrator, in character narrator of this, early on in the chapter does talk about how she wants to bone her house founder, too. Like, just let that slip. It's That's true. It, despite having never met her. Yeah. No. Anyway, they find Dougal
0: really boring. The Elenid, they have a love and hate relationship with, but it seems like mostly hate. Gwydion, they find really uptight, and Liam, they're kind of like shrug <laughs> among the commoners. They like the Ishu, the Satyrs, the Puka, and the Trolls. The first three, because they're the best to sleep with. They're cool with Boggins. They're a little more cool with Red Caps than most of the other houses are, and they really don't like the Knockers and Slua. So, yeah.
1: The lane has an interesting running theme from our episodes. There's a section on the Nymphs, separate from the (laughs) anime. An incredibly short section, though.
0: Yeah. And again, pointing to the timing of this book's writing, you know, An Anime, The Secret Way came out very shortly after this one, and yet nymphs are still a separate thing. I really feel like this book was written in 1996 and then just slowly tweaked for
1: two years. Yeah. I still want to have nymphs as just not being an anime. Or just Because there's no anime called nymphs explicitly, are there? No. Yeah. At some point, I will write that kith book it's coming yep we
0: get a whole ass sidebar on the fiona and the fiona including
1: references to king kinfolk unsung heroes in tribe book fiona and immortalized law. kings yeah. i i mean most of this i think is pretty standard i
0: do find the autumn people notes to be a little bit interesting you know like the the way that they conceive of the autumn people obviously they're not afraid of them because they're house fiona but then they see them as like a dangerous way of forcing themselves to show restraint. Like, Oh, if we need to curb our passions, we could go deal with the autumn people, which is quite different Mm. from the way other changelings see them. So.
1: Yep. No
0: fear. Then there's some politics stuff, which is very vague. It just kind of says politics happen. And then we get some faces again. We get probably more information about the High Lord Rathsmere of House Fiona than any of the other High Lords. He lives Mm -hmm. in France, and he assigns quests to people. So it seems like there's meant to be something there. Mm -hmm. And then Julia Spencer Drake is the author of this chapter. She will return in Fool's Luck way of the commoner, where I like her much better. The casual racism in the Duke Selim Mm -hmm. write-up.
1: Count Gut Splicer, who's a red cap. And I remember uh, this must've been in some other book. Cause like I looked up where the, he's 200 miles North of uh, Vancouver, but talking like hanging out Like you don't, if you're 200 yeah. miles North of Vancouver, you are not hanging out in Vancouver very much. You are in everyone. I know who's l- lived there briefly. It, uh, I guess it makes for a red cap might work, but it's very not fun places. So <laughs> some yeah. of the most crime ridden parts of Canada, like very small town all the stereotypes of banality kind of all there anyway.
0: But he is probably the only red cap count in the game.
1: Oh yeah. They just said him like 10 miles or 20 miles north.
0: (laughs) Yeah. We have lady Finula Finnegan, whose name I can't read without thinking of actress Fianula Flanagan. Sir Sathar, who founded that order of Knights. Lord Dylan, who's an extreme throwback, like going way back to Freeholds and Hidden Glens. And then Baron Aron and Baroness Elowin, who I think come back in Kingdom of Willows. And they run Renaissance fairs or something.
1: Yep. I like House Fiona. This chapter is like our kith book, Knockers. Yeah. Where you're like, they have sex, great. But like, passion, showing no fear, romance, right? Like, those things would be cool, right? To highlight. Yeah. Just constantly talking about sex when it you really don't need to in those parts, like Yeah. Yeah. And then not having anything interest it's not not it's not like there's anything edgy about it or anything. It's just, it's just yeah. awkward. Yeah. Well anyways. Moving on. Yeah. So House Grition. My ch- my chapter notes consist entirely of it's written by Ethan Skemp. This makes me think of an episode on Faye politics might be good. That's my entire notes That's on this chapter.
0: That's about what it boils down to. Yeah. And I mean, I, I have to say I am here for the Ron Spencer art. Like even though some mm-hmm. of it was clearly repurposed from werewolf, <laughs> like,
1: you know? Yeah. This makes me feel like, which was in color and like from heavy metal, like the, like
0: the first yeah. Yeah. Movie. I mean, the chapter opener looks like an eighties movie poster. Yep. And the story Again, the story is long, but I think quite good. Yeah. I like
1: it. Gwydion Gu- started out a complete jerk, and then just got turned into an animal for a while by uh, one of the Tuatha, probably, and then eventually just became a right uh, like stuck up Gwydion.
0: Oh, I meant the first story. That's the second story.
1: <laughs>
0: oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, I but that confused. that too, that too. I mean, because the first story, I mean, the first story is just like typical Gwydion. He takes the place of Leonin, who's like the foe of his, his liege. And he agrees to like, take his place for this fight. And Leonin's like, Hey, thanks for doing me a solid. And the Gwydion's like, I know where all of the secret entry points to your castle are now. Don't ever piss me off. Mm -hmm. Also treat your, treat your harem better. Yeah. And then, yeah, the Gwydion, the Gwydion thing is actually interesting because it's kind of like a mashup of the actual myths from the Mabinogion from Welsh mythology, at least the animal transformation and reform part. And then it's kind of combined with Lloyd Alexander's Pradine Chronicles, I think. So that sort of arc from, I guess, like bratty warrior prince who goes around treating women poorly, gets his comeuppance, and then becomes like, oh, I'm I'm honorable now. I fight duels. It's an interesting arc to kind of follow. Mm-hmm. So I'm into it. And then they're really bummed out because they couldn't stop the shattering. Okay. It's interesting also, to go back to what I said about the Aelinad, that the two houses kind of have these parallels where it's like, well, we're honor bound to rule. So it's, it's only natural that we take that role. And of course we did our mm-hmm. best for the commoners, but when we came back, they were just so unruly and they have like zero capacity for self-reflection as a group.
1: Yeah. And it also highlights one interesting thing though, that in this is before the sundering Gwydion were not a big deal house at all. Right. Yeah. yeah, like yeah, it yeah. Was after the sundering, they started gaining political power. Yeah. And a lot of territory and stuff.
0: And that Gwydion himself was one of the three total members of the
1: house who stayed behind. Yeah, this talks a lot about the house hierarchy versus the noble hierarchy. Yeah. And yeah, I'm trying to work out what that means. And it says like, oh, it leads to complications. I'm like, okay, yeah. And I know it's supposed to be like based on houses of noble families in real life. And I'm just trying to conceive of how that fits, but...
0: Well, there's an interesting distinction here where they point out their loyalty to David as like an idea of what he represents and what they uphold, but then fealty to Mm -hmm. the high lord in
1: terms of receiving
0: their orders and everything. So that dichotomy is interesting.
1: But they also still would have a fealty to David if they're in Concordia.
0: I guess it's almost like the separation between head of state and commander of chief commander in chief or something. Mm. I don't know. Maybe we need to do some background research on feudalism or something.
1: Yep. Cause that definitely came up too. I know in Royal politics, at least. About. Yeah.
0: The history is a little more fleshed out, but it does all kind of lead up to, and by mm-hmm. the way, the high King is a Gwydion cause we're awesome.
1: Yep. Talks about, they really hate the, it's like, well, we used to go between the seal and the unseelie, but now the un- unseelie suck. So uh, yeah. no,
0: they're really not into the unseelie are they?
1: And they're basically saying because they're Thalane unseelie can't rule what yeah this whole thing goes through it's like okay they have a boon that they can tell when somebody who's not elinode is lying and this takes them to mean that they think they know the truth about everything is i think how i interpret it yeah
0: there is that wonderful section in Kith book puka when we get to that that's like two pages of a noble trying to interrogate a puka and it's like the irresistible force meets the immovable object. <laughs> the sidebar on intrigue and how Gwydion lie, I think, is actually really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. It, it's useful for figuring out how to play that as a, as a Gwydion character.
1: Yep. I think there's something in the C20 player's guide, one of the KISS, mm-hmm. but I really want a trickster fae that can't lie.
0: Well, Puka don't lie. Puka just tell alternative truths.
1: Sure. Anyways, um,
0: as unseely hating as the Gwydion claim to be, the first, well, not societies, it's listed as gatherings and camps. The first society we get is the Iron Paladins, who are the unseely Gwydion. So there's mm-hmm. that. And then the Red Branch, who are like the quintessential knights and the Beltane Blade, who we have already heard many things about. The very sort of arch-conservative... We deserve to rule, divine right, kind of she, epitomized by Duke Dre. I kind of wanted more interesting societies in here.
1: Yeah, they imply Duke Dre's in Seely. I'm like, no, no, he's Seely, But maybe they yeah. think he's on He's
0: the worst kind of Sealy. Mm-hmm. The escheat section, I thought, was kind of interesting because it kind of rigorously defends each of the rights because, like, the cheat is their thing. But then each of the quotes from random Gwydion, that kind of are associated with each, almost go entirely against, like they, they kind of demonstrate Gwydion hypocrisy. They go against the spirit of the rights they're mm-hmm. talking about, or at least bend around with the letter of the law. So that kind of logical pretzel twisting, I think, is very telling.
1: Yeah, they're, they're kind of hypocritical that don't realize they're being hypocritical.
0: Kind yeah. Of person. Yeah, absolutely. That might be their defining feature more than anything. Mm-hmm. There's a sidebar on the Sealy Code, which kind of follows the same pattern. And then they don't even bother with the unsealy Code. <laughs> so, yep. Fostering, you know, it's feudalism. You're a squire, then mm-hmm. you're not. There's some note, I forget if it's in this section or elsewhere, where it's like they have over a hundred different kinds of trials that they subject themselves to. And then we get the two merits and one flaw in this book.
1: Which... Unstoppable fury. I kind of liked.
0: Yeah. So yeah, you can have kind of a berserker merit that gives you strength and stamina. You can be kinfolk or you can be judgmental, which is kind of like the empathic blindness flaw that the she get in the dreaming. Mm -hmm. But I didn't even realize how annoyed I was that the rest of the book didn't have merits and flaws until I got here. I was like,
1: oh, right. (laughs) Yeah. Is this the first time they had kinfolk merit? It might be for
0: Changeling, but I thought they had had it already. So I'm not sure. I thought the core book had it. Yeah, that's what I thought too. Again, if it was written in first edition, maybe they didn't have one at that point. But, and I don't think we actually get any oaths in this chapter, which I'm just noticing.
1: Yeah. If any house should have them. Right. Maybe they just had too many. Yeah. I think this is somewhere it's like, oh, the regular oaths are our oaths. (laughs) Yeah. We made them.
0: So then we get the other houses. They're really into Dougal. They're kind of meh about Liam and Fiona. They do not like the Island Ed. for the commoners. Mm-hmm. They're unsurprisingly pro troll ahead of everybody else, followed by Boggins, followed by everybody else.
1: <laughs> so, is there a house that hates Boggins? That would be.
0: I don't think so. Maybe one of the unsealing <laughs> ones, probably like Varric or something. It's like, ugh. There is a nice sidebar on ennobling commoners, and I'm glad that that's Oh there is an oath. There we go. Oath of the Falcon. So but that's not actually necessarily um
1: yeah, it's kind of it's just the it's just the the oath to join the house and it's kind of implied all houses would have that. So Yeah. It's the text of the oath for you, I guess.
0: I feel like as a storyteller I'd
1: rather write my own. I found it handy, but I was like running larps and be like, "Oh no, there's freaking f- 14 houses at this point." And yeah. <laughs> all sorts of other oaths. Let's just you just say the oath, right? So. Yeah. And everyone goes, oh.
0: So then we get a section on the Galane, which apparently consists of the Prodigals, Mortals, and Fomorians. So, yeah. So there's
1: that. Someone got confused what Gallain meant. Yeah. Possibly the writer, the author of the in-character author. I'll just go with that. Yep. They dig werewolves.
0: They kind of find mortals disgusting and useless but they acknowledge mm-hmm. their duty to defend them or whatever.
1: The Fomorians, he seems skeptical about the connection between Fomorian and Fomorians. Yeah. He doesn't want to completely discount it.
0: Yeah. The the sort of sidebar section, it's not really a sidebar, but it's half of a page on current affairs, I thought was actually quite good because it gives you story hooks to work with very directly. So I liked that mm-hmm. where it talks about like, oh, the unsaily houses are back, so we have to fight them. And, oh, we're trying to reclaim our homeland of Khmeri. So, cool stuff. And then a bunch of faces, most of whom I think we've already seen, because you have David and Morwen and Duke Topaz, Duke Dre. Queen Morgana, I think, was mentioned in Nobles the Shining Coast, briefly. So the only really new ones are High Lord Ardenon, who, I guess, there's some decent information. He lives in Germany, which is interesting, because in the game, Germany is like, commoner democracy Mm -hmm. there's Baroness Adoin Fireplate who is an angry drunk and Lady Kelamon who's kind of like mortal defending Brienne of Tarth all right I do like that Ardenon is also said to be on the edge of Bedlam there's a story hook in there somewhere as well Mm -hmm. and that's Gwydion I mean I liked this chapter I think I would like it more if I actually liked the house yeah it's kind of it's a well-written chapter
1: (laughs) I think it's the best written chapter like i think it's even better done than the alien chapter on a house like doesn't leave me yeah it's like okay i could definitely play an npc of that for when we need a guidian to be a guidian
0: yeah i mean it's good i liked it Mm -hmm. but then we get to everybody's pity friend house liam the exiled Mm -hmm. and this one talks
1: about a mortal (laughs) that's the thing
0: well so here's the thing as much as I loved the Aelinid opening story, this story to me, the opening, is the more changeling story. Like this, mm-hmm. this is a self-contained tale that completely explains an aspect of the setting. It's about this data entry woman who over the course of a week slowly starts to have these like, dreams and feelings and stuff she feels herself kind of compelled to sing as she's caught in this dead-end job and then weird stuff starts happening and this guy finds her and then she either gets enchanted or like awakens into her changeling nature it's not entirely clear which but Mm -hmm. um i loved it i thought it was beautifully beautifully written i do too so yeah i mean i don't i don't want to give it away or anything (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's just great
1: it also made me think of a new way of using an art I didn't think of.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Great Oneiromancy stuff, too. Mm-hmm. And then we don't actually get, like, an origin myth for the house. This is also the chapter that was written by, um, what's his name, Brian Durrell. So it does kind of go in a very unexpected direction, I think I'm kind of okay with it because we had such thin detail about Liam as a house. As we've mm-hmm. seen before, it seems like every book has at least one house Liam she, But, you know, in terms of their overall ethos, we had very little to go on until this book. I don't know. I, I guess I'm okay with it. it. It is kind of like a headcanon thing. Uh, anyway
1: yeah this led me down a weird uh history rabbit hole actually when i was reading this and i'm like wait a sec is that correct when it talked about 590 ce and i'm like francy and then i'm like going through like what was he's like that was before charlemagne and anyway it's set in france oh well, yeah and
0: there were no moorish mosques in spain in 590 so <laughs> there's also that
1: yeah that would be yeah hmm, i just forgot about it, that part. it does
0: kind of play fast and loose with the dates
1: Yep. Why did you say 590 CE specific date? Yeah.
0: But so basically the history chapter is like the greatest hits and it focuses on a few particular events. And this narrative voice, it doesn't seem to be in character. I mean, it is still a narrative voice, but it's not like, okay, young one, here's the history of your house. It's just kind of Mm -hmm. these tales. First, we get the story of House Liam's fall, which apparently came about because they were the only ones willing to accept that religion could lead to the glamour of creativity. And I feel like that's it. Like their original oath breaking and exiles because they fostered creativity in a nun.
1: Well, no, it was because he went in and it was a bit more than that. Well, the, yeah, okay. but that wasn't the oath-breaking. Part.
0: But that was that was the motivation. It was set up as like a gotcha, and that was yeah. the motivation for it. Like, oh, we're gonna get this guy who keeps going in and using this nun by causing him to snap and massacre the convent or mm-hmm. massacre their dreams or whatever, and
1: then come and storm Arcadia. Yeah,
0: right. So that happened.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Then we get their sort of shattering story where half of them went back to the dreaming but not Arcadia, and half of them stayed on Earth. There's an interesting note in here where it kind of seems to suggest that actually getting to Arcadia is the prerequisite for the she, kind of remembering anything about Earth when they returned to it in the resurgence. So it Mm -hmm. says that like the Liam who went to the Dreaming were just in the Dreaming, and when they came back during the resurgence, they were like, where am I? They didn't remember, oh yeah, this is Earth where we rule everything yeah so
1: there's also an interesting little possible story about mortals in a suburb of arcadia basically yeah i want to do something with that anyway yeah
0: and the note about many of them slipping away you know falling to banality or whatever when they returned because they refused to take mortal bodies is a a nice little bittersweet Mm -hmm. thing and then when they returned there was kind of a schism in the house There were some who saw the Accordance War as an opportunity to, like, redeem themselves in the eyes of the other she, And then another group of them who were like, "Uh, we're going to go to Amsterdam and not have anything to do with any of this.
1: There's one thing with the whole history and the way the oath fell and stuff. It gives me the impression, like, you could be a Liam she like, did your seining, and yeah, you're Liam. And you have a fair amount of remembrance, and you're like, I did not like Liam. And I never agreed with what he did, and (laughs) screw mortals (laughs) could be a thing.
0: Well, I'm wondering, I, I could give a spoiler. Should I give a spoiler here? Yeah. All right. This is a C20 spoiler, specifically. Canonically, I don't know if you remember the character from Immortal Eyes 3, Court of All Kings, Liam the Clericon Bard, who kind of hangs out with the Oathmates and, like, Hang, you know, follows them around. And he was like the port of entry to introduce the Chloricon Kith. Mm-hmm. But he comes back in the fourth novel and he's Liam. Mm. He is reincarnated as a commoner and he's proof that that's what happens to the she.
1: Oh, so I kind of like that. So that's not just Kith books. Lua. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was so much about Amsterdam in this chapter.
0: Maybe that's where the author was from or lived or something.
1: Is it didn't like it?
0: I mean, it's, It's all fine, I guess. Overall, it's kind of like a subdued tone that fits for the the trope of the humble, charitable knight that they Mm -hmm. lean into. They're overwhelmingly seely, we find out. Mm -hmm. Although there are a few singleton, unseely folks. There's a note here about a scholar at Harvard University producing a monograph on the subject. And I'm like, well, who's she? You know, I want to know more about that. But the official position is that the Unseelie Court is completely unwelcome within the House, at least mm-hmm. as a political entity. As a side effect, though, the influence of the Shadow Court is almost completely absent.
1: I mean, they seem more in opposition to the Shadow Court than the standard Sealy Court would be. So, Yeah.
0: I guess they were already exiled from from things when the, the Seelie-Unseelie system and Compact and everything was set up, so they wouldn't really care. They weren't like, yeah, the Shadow Court doesn't need to take power for any length of time we don't care about that tradition.
1: I thought that was supposed to be before that, that started before this. Anyway.
0: Well, but I mean, it was, it was still going in five ninety CE. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what I meant. Yeah. They had several hundred years to not be able to participate in that. So mm-hmm. I'm sure they stopped caring far earlier than anybody else. Yeah. About that tradition. Cause that's the thing is that like even Gwydion, I think in that chapter, there's a note like, well, you know, we can't totally ignore them because traditionally they did rule for part of the year. And Liam's just like, no,
1: they're like we rule for none of the year, so uh... <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: But then again, just like with Gwydion, as we get to the societies, the first one we get is the
1: Unseelie Liam, so <laughs> yeah, the Midnight Mummers who play pranks, but are also even their like jokester pa- prank group seems like really dour and uh
0: and they're the ones that wear the masks right
1: no that's the knights Templar aren't it, isn't it or is it the mummers oh yeah
0: no it's it's in the first paragraph okay they're called the mummers for the masks that they were forced to wear okay but then yes the knights Templar who are specialists I guess you could say
1: they do the dirty work oh yeah they're the ones who like they like if you if you insult a liam they go and mess with you
0: yeah and then it's interesting how like religion keeps coming up as a theme in this chapter. And I don't want to say, I guess I, I kind of like it because it speaks to the fact that they have been the human loving house or whatever, since the earliest days, since like mm-hmm. way before the shattering, when the church was what people turned to, to be able to express glamour as constrained as it was, you know, because you have like cathedrals and music and all this stuff and they were the only ones willing to like look at that.
1: Although also in five 590 CE also doesn't quite fit that. But anyway.
0: <laughs> well, you have Gregorian chant. You had churches. Well,
1: yeah, it, no, but I, mean, I guess it depends where. Italy, uh, France. But
0: in the early medieval times. Yeah. But then kind of leaning into that further, you have the gray monks who specifically extract glamour from the rituals and the beliefs of the devout. I'm like, all right, yeah. that's fine. I like these guys. Someone has to.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We get a fair amount of detail on the Escheet. Mm-hmm. They're not really keen on the right of ignorance because they hang out with mortals so often, but they're super into the rights of Domain and Safe Haven, which makes total sense. And the right to dream is the most
1: important of all. Mm-hmm. But they're like, eh, right to life. Uh, unless you ravage, then we'll kill you. Yeah. They take some sort of
0: schadenfreude when childlings who are growing up turn out to be House Liam, and they could be like, ha, suck it, Gwydion. But then other houses sometimes adopt the Liam into their own house because they're like, oh, we need to give you a better opportunity than hanging with that House of Oathbreakers. Mm -hmm. For the other houses, they really dislike the Dougal. (laughs) Well, all of them. They really dislike all of the other ones. But they think Dougal are even more stuck up than the Gwydion, which is... They, actually, all right, they They say the Gwydion are their friends, but they're condescending friends.
1: Mm-hmm. The Gwydion are the only house that actually sticks up for them.
0: Yeah. They consider Elena to be the most unseelie and so irredeemably stained, and they dislike how the Fiona treat mortals as pets. Mm-hmm. Among the commoners, they welcome commoners into their house, but as is a common theme, they're less keen on the Knockers, Redcaps, and Slua.
1: So... <laughs> There's a picture in here. I'm pretty sure is in Clanbook Bali, Bali, the one on one one twenty two. Oh, I think you might be right. Yeah, <sighs> like yeah, yeah, yeah. Different bit of a different meaning, I think, unless they're really broad in what religions they uh, they <laughs> get glamour from.
0: Yeah, or maybe it was in here first, and then in in Clanbook Bali.
1: Maybe I have to look at it, but I know that Clanbook Bali was pretty early for Dark Ages. So
0: yeah. We have the Oath of Duty and the Oath of Union. Oh, no, I think I think this is the original source of the art because the text in the background is the text of the Oath of Union.
1: Oh, what's a different picture?
0: Or maybe they just added that in. There's a story hook waiting to be explored. There's a lot of detail here on the Prodigals, like more than any of the other chapters. Vampires, they are not into. Really? Yeah. Surprise. Surprise. <laughs> Werewolves, I do like that they hang out with the Bonars because the Bonars need more love.
1: Mm -hmm. Apparently the Bonars also hang out in Amsterdam.
0: (laughs) Yeah. They're not into mages. And I do like that it says, for all of their kind of ties to religion, with the exception of the Grey Monks, they're very wary of the Celestial Chorus because they remember the Inquisition all too well. Mm -hmm. So even though they draw glamour from faith and religious devotion, they're very careful to distinguish like the more banal expression of faith, and the more orthodox versions, I guess, from like the true inspiration that comes from it. So I like that it kind of. I also
1: like how they're like, "Why, why do the, why do the most banal scientists sometimes call themselves mages? Like they're like the technocracy. Those are obviously not mages, right?
0: They're, just... <laughs> they're like, ghosts might exist. We don't believe they do." And then the Nunyahi are described as having unreasonable hatred of Cithane. I'm like, is it really that unreasonable, though?
1: Look at which mortals the Liam focus on. That might. Mm.
0: We get more deets about the political schism within the
1: house. They are the most schismed house by far, I think. They really are.
0: Well, Beaumain also has quite a schism, but we'll mm. get to that later on.
1: Yeah, but there's like multiple, multiple sides within Liam that really don't get along well. That's true.
0: (laughs) A lot of which has to do with the political parties introduced in Nobles, the Shining Host. Mm -hmm. Something I'm not wild about, the famous faces that way I feel are House Notables. Mm -hmm. They're all very fleshed out, like they all have multiple paragraphs of information, and I feel like I don't really know how to use any of them.
1: I have a note in my notes of, these characters seem the most designed of any chapter for use in games. I thought they were the ones that made most sense to me to use in a game out of all the chapters.
0: Okay. But I feel like you'd have to build a story around their specific, like they don't fit easily into whatever game you need to like have a specific, Mm -hmm. you need to have a game into which they can slot easily. I mean, I like them. My favorite is probably the one who's an issue activist photojournalist. Like, that's really cool. Yeah. But that kind of character doesn't just kind of drop into any game you want.
1: Um,
0: I don't know. Maybe she could.
1: Depends what's happening, I guess, around the player characters.
0: Yeah, I suppose. But aside from her, Ellen Rinson, we have Harlequin, the leader of the Mummers. Count Donahue, who's the ambassador from the European faction. Sir Elaine. Actually, she's probably even more Brienne of Tarthish than what's her name? The Gwydion has
1: yeah. Yeah, a bit of overlap on those characters.
0: Yeah. That's the thing, though. Like, there's only so many tropes you can write into for the she, especially with like Gwydion. I think Gwydion are probably the flattest out of all of these. They're still well mm-hmm. done here. It's just there might be two note instead of one note, but that's it. Tenebrea, who I really don't know what to make of this character. It's like, yeah they're of house liam but they attack house liam i'm not really sure
1: that's okay that of all the ones here this one needs a, a more extensive write-up to go like
0: what <laughs> well what about high lord Noman though here's the entirety okay. of this write-up this figure is shrouded in mystery he has been seen by many of the house always arriving just in time to aid those
1: in need but he has never appeared the same to any of them thanks book yeah you just have somebody show up and like help you and be like hi i'm Noman. Bye." And then somebody else later, some different person. Says, I have no mid. <laughs> okay, okay, you're right. Both of he them. is in this robe and
0: mask getup, which I'm not sure if that's supposed to be the Midnight Mummer outfit or the Grey Monk outfit or both. But,
1: mm-hmm. you know. The Grey Mummers.
0: Yeah, the Midnight Monks. Anyway, I, I do really like this chapter, even though it doesn't really offer yeah. much in the way of, like, detail or crunch. I think it gives a lot more depth to a house that otherwise has been very, like I said, unclear, where the individual members have been really thoroughly fleshed out, but kind of the house that they're part of has been this non-entity. So I do think Actually, it gives them... yeah, it
1: would let... Like, I could run an all, a very Liam-focused game after reading that chapter, which yeah. I don't think I could have without it.
0: Especially if you wanted to lean into that political schism stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. And then we get to the appendix character templates. I
0: I did not like I any of them. I do not like these. <laughs> yep. Do you know what's something that's really frustrating is when, and I think we've talked about this before, when like whoever put the dots onto the sheet clearly did not pay attention to how many dots go where.
1: A lot of these characters are mm-hmm. shortchanged. I mean, they're NPCs. You don't have to. Well, it says you could use them as PCs, right? That's the problem, right?
0: Yeah, they're templates. They're meant to be, if you don't have time to create a character of your own, here are five.
1: Oh, Jesus. Could you imagine trying to run a game and, like, you just hand everybody these character templates?
0: Right, yeah. (laughs) So we have a Dougal corporate operative, I guess, is what he is? Architect of doom. Yeah, but it's like, he went to law school and... Now he's a shark in the Goldfish Pond Oh life, whatever that means
1: With no title and is just kind of,
0: yeah I don't think any of them have title Oh no, the Fiona I mean, has some of them Fiona do. and the Gwydion Oh actually, okay, yeah, the other and, three all do And the Liam The Islanded Private Eye gets the most detail but I think has like the most punitive dots Actually no, the Dougal I think does The Fiona's the most overpowered <laughs> She's got the most stuff yeah, the escort, madam. Yeah, the Gwydion falconer—that is a niche character, if ever there was one. Other traits include <laughs> animal ken and falconry. The Liam is actually the most balanced. I think it's the only one that actually yeah. fits the character creation method, and I'd play with. But it also has the least detail.
1: Well, it also, but it also is like the one that goes like, oh. I could bring at least make this as an, pull up this out as an NPC in a game as a, and like, yeah, that makes total sense. The other characters are like, oh, you're now coming across a quidian Falconer. <laughs> like, what? Right, yeah. <laughs> She's here. Like, Diplomat. The character could work as a player character, could work as an NPC. The other ones... What?
0: Yeah, the Diplomat is just like, you're a Diplomat. That's the entire character.
1: But not a rich one. You gotta pretty cheap card yeah i did
0: not really care for any of these no hell i think nobles the shining host had better templates than this so yeah anyway but then we get
1: into the ads oh so, I, don't, I don't have my hard copy in front of me i know it was different i had like ad for uh had land of eight million dreams in there
0: yes well there's a full page on the year of the lotus and it's like oh okay your mileage may vary then there's a full-page ad for Trinity with a sidebar that says, the game formerly known as Aeon is now Trinity. We have our reasons. So, yeah, there's so they got sued. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, they didn't get sued. There was the, the possibility that they might get sued.
1: Oh, okay. I think they got a strongly worded let- letter. Yeah,
0: Something like that, yeah, yeah. And then we get the Wraith the Oblivion second edition ad with the Shadow Court Unsealy Redcap art. Cause It does look vaguely wraithly, so you know.
1: Yeah. See, when they die of cold iron, that's what they look like.
0: I will also point out that in my hard copy I have a little faded demonic head stamp on the back cover because this was one of the books that I got during White Wolves' six sixty six backstock sale. Whenever that was. Mm. Do you remember that? That was the
1: thing. Yep. I got um when I opened it up a uh thing fluttered out like part way through was uh it's just a bunch of pictures of butterflies like a picture like a strip of paper with butterfly pictures on it i'm like oh well, i know that was in a changeling book
0: <sighs> i also the the spine art is weirdly faded on my copy and i'm not sure why mm-hmm. like the not work well, that's okay. part of the big
1: picture mine was faded too what is going on here
0: yeah i don't i guess it was like some kind of printing thing but was it printed in Canada? No, it wasn't. That's what happens when you don't print your books in Canada. Faded spine art. Printed in the United States of America. Yep. Well, anyway, that's the book. Overall thoughts?
1: I think it's um. There's definitely stuff I missed. Stuff I liked. On the whole test of do you need this in your C twenty game? It's not useless. I don't think this book even at the time needed to happen compared if I could have had a different book covering some other stuff, but it's not bad to have.
0: I would say if you're planning to run a deep political game where you really yeah. want three dimensionality in the characters with respect to what it means to be part of one of the houses, I think mm-hmm. that's where its value lies, but that value varies depending on which house you're looking at yeah i think you would get the most out of alienid and liam from that mm-hmm. probably followed by gwideon then fiona then Dougal. like mm-hmm. i think doogle is the least useful out of
1: all of these i think it's very useful for playing Dougal, honestly just like for yeah. doing Dougal focused games but it doesn't leave me wanting but to do a that foc- yeah <laughs> <laughs> <It's-> <laughs> if you're doing a Dougal focused game is it's <laughs> The best source for that. <laughs> yeah.
0: If you're doing a Google game, look at your life. Look at your choices.
1: You're like, why aren't you running a knocker bog in conflict game? Why are you doing it? In, yeah. I guess. Like, if you're And if you're running the political focus game, you'd probably want Nobles the Shining Host. You'd want the other two Book of Houses. Yes. And, I mean, C20 Player's Guide now. So it's like, on top of this. And it's not the most important out of all those.
0: Yeah. When we get to Book of Houses too, I definitely think that's the stronger... Of the two
1: of all the political books it's probably the least useful in terms of just yeah because yeah but actually this
0: this fades nicely into the first of our questions from the discord where Sanchiger asks please explain to us why the Guiion are the true villains of the game bonus points for elevating the islandid to their proper place as the best of the Sealy houses so to return to that point I do think it is still useful to see 20 players who want to play an islanded. Yes. That's heavily because the only other like resources we get for the Islanded are just variations on the Sneaky Bastards theme because mm-hmm. you get Milga and that whole meta plot. Yeah. So I like this book for complicating that.
1: Yeah. Like I think it, I think Gwydion, it might be actually, I think for Gwydion and Fiona, Fiona because don't make that the house, and Gwydion because there's not much in it that you wouldn't have just thought of anyway. Like, right, it wasn't yeah. wrong. It wasn't like Fiona where you're like, don't do that. It's like, no, this this all makes sense. But like, you could read the like blurb of, in any of the core books of House Goodie and you're like, yeah, that makes, this is what I would expect from this chapter. But Elinud, yeah, it takes yeah. a nice spin. Liam and Dougal flesh it out, at least a lot in ways. Yeah. To the point about Goodian being the villains. There's a different role, I'd say, than villains for them. Sticks in the mud. Well, no, there's, you need... I don't know the name of this type of character, but like they're the they're part of the setting almost. Like they're the setting up. This is the frame that your character has to exist in and sometimes it's aligned with your character, and sometimes it's opposed to your character. Well, I think what bugs me kind of follows
0: from that in, in that because the Gwydians are kind of villains in their first their privileging of the rules above all else and their unbendingness mm-hmm. about it, but then also their sort of arrogance. The thing is, though, in sort of a meta sense, you have this conflict inherent to Changeling where like the dreams of chivalry and absolute honor are kind of part and parcel of the game's um, aesthetic. But then Mm -hmm. mechanically and in terms of the setting, they're set up in such a way that I can't see how they wouldn't be insufferably banal, you know, Mm. like they're so stick to the rules. How are they glamorous at all? It does also make me think that some of the best Dauntane characters are probably Gwydion knights who have gone Dante. Yep. So.
1: Yeah, this book actually, actually, now that I think about it, actually the chapter, maybe it's I'm leaning towards not liking the chapter. Maybe they give, go a bit too far into all <laughs> Gwydion here.
0: Well, again, it's very well written, but it yeah. definitely plays into that same idea of the Gwydion that we've already seen again and again and again.
1: Yeah, maybe it's a bit too hard the Fiona at least aren't banal, they're just, no. But, right, yeah, the Gridian, yeah. yeah.
0: So that's that's my complaint about them.
1: Yep. And uh, no, Elon are not the best of the Sealy houses, because they're the best of the... Are they even the best of the ambiguous houses? Yeah, I like Darren better, but that's me. I mean, Skahawks also. There's this whole... Actually, how many... I was like saying in the Discord, like, how many houses are there... Where you're like ambiguous really which house you are and you have all these lores and secrets and like you have this specialty for like hidden magic it's like four houses, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I think it's those three. <laughs> maybe you could throw Dan on as well. The thing that bugs me about Skaha is that they're kind of like Mary Sue's. We're the oracles who exist outside fate and also we're the ones that the commoners get along with. And also we're incredible martial artists.
1: It's like when we get to Book of Houses two, I think it was was it Book of Houses two that has the full write up? That was the Book Book of Lost Houses. It was Book they were in Book of Lost Houses? Okay. That's the most Mary Sue Skahawk. Like, I had to, like, yes. run game and be like, no, I can't have this in my game. This, I'd rather you take dough. Like, <laughs> but anyway. Yep.
0: So, moving on, uh, Van Eck says, I think Dougal are the most innocent of all houses. Turns out, not if you're a werewolf.
1: And <laughs> eh, werewolf had it coming.
0: You can make the same statement about Fiona, as it turns out. Yep. And I think weren't the Gwydions the ones who adopted the Fenrir, to get a Fenris, like as mounts, uh, or was that a different house?
1: I can't remember. I think it might.
0: I feel that. like it was Gwiteon. I Maybe it's not stated anywhere, but it sounds like a Gwydion thing to do.
1: It uh, seemed like they'd be too okay. You know what? That's another problem with this. They're too much of a stick of a in this book to to do that.
0: Yeah. And then Fetch asks, were the banner houses introduced for C20? And do you feel like they fill an interesting narrative gap that wouldn't be better covered with new full-fledged houses? So yes, they were introduced for C20. I do think they fill a narrative gap because, first of all, if you're going to do the whole feudal framework thing, that is kind of how houses work. There are junior branches and senior branches and spinoffs and new houses and all of that. It does add a layer of politics that can be interesting, although it might be too much for some people to kind of get that complex. This isn't a feudalism simulator, Mm -hmm. people. But what I think the banner houses are most useful for is that they're an alternative system for making the houses multidimensional. So like in here, we have Elanid kind of developed into more interesting, fully fleshed out characters. You could equally have just be their one-dimensional selves and then uh, add other banner houses that do different things with the concept so yeah i don't know maybe it's not totally an either or thing but
1: there's another thing banner houses do in the c20 uh player's guide if i remember correctly i think they also help you localize your game like if you're not running a game in the u.s yes um they can exactly help without having to like Okay, now we're going to create a whole new house. Now you could like be like, "Ah, they're kind of Gideon-ish or they're kind of Liamish or they're kind of Dougal-ish or they're kind of Aleel-ish, whatever, right?" And then you create banner houses that more fit your local culture. That could work too.
0: But importantly, there's a difference between that, which I still kind of see as a little bit colonial, and houses that are actually sprung from the dreams of the different places that just happen to yeah. affiliate thematically. There's a lot of places
1: where that would fit still, though. But yeah, depends on what you're going for.
0: And I do think the player's guide gets into that a little bit, but that's a question for mm-hmm. further down the line when we handle C20. Thanks to the Discord folks for contributing questions and comments.
1: Yep. And I think also this book, again, with the exception of Fiona, because it's all in character, it's easier to go. Maybe there is somebody that's stuck in the mud as the, the Gwydian person, but it doesn't mean the whole house is exactly like that. This is just what they think of it, right? Yeah. So, that works too.
0: Okay. And with that?
1: Yeah. You can find our Discord at discord.me slash CTP. You can email us, podcast at changelingthepodcast.com. You can find our Facebook page, uh, the Podcast. You can send us a toot at Changeling Pod at dice.camp and you can find everything including our episodes and everything uh, changelingthepodcast.com didn't miss anything right
0: i think that's everything (laughs) all of the links will be available in the show notes to this episode
1: yeah and once again i'm josh
0: i am honor bound to inform you that i remain puka
1: and uh don't go like creeping on a singing nun it's creepy
0: if a Gwydion and an Islanid both ask you to swear an oath, tuck your trousers in and say, Why not both? While we cannot verify that the Liam, among many possible candidates, are the true progenitors of the Bali, we are happy to inform you that House Guiona is only one of the many mashup houses we've discovered since recording this episode. Others include House Duganid, who craft treasures in the form of five and a quarter inch floppy disks. House Elanen, who gain glamour by destroying carefully written diplomatic cables, and House Skahanon, who just can't seem to make up their minds about anything, but look darn good while doing so. Other folks whom we assign to the category of Darn Good include our Patreon supporters, most recently identified as Derek, Dorkadus, Jason Vines, Oreo, Raskabuz, Sandjager, Sija, and Terry Robinson. If you too would like to join these hallowed ranks, please consider stopping by www.patreon.com slash to support our show, so that we can keep bringing you weekly fae-related content. You can also join our Discord at www.discord.me ctp, or leave a review of our show on the podcast listening platform of your greatest convenience. Whatever house you identify with, thanks for giving us a listen, and until next time, keep on dreaming.